turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. I just got to be honest. So, a lot of people, this is a big day, right, for the Cincinnati area. We're super excited. A lot of people wearing jerseys and bangle stuff, which is cool. I'm not. My, the toe line on my sock is orange, I'm telling you. But that's as good as I could get today. But seeing everybody sing, like, it was just weird for me. I just got to, like, I'm, I was in the back. And it's like, there will be a day. And just looking at people, like, with their bangles jerseys, like, yes. And I'm just like, you know, we're, it's about heaven. You know that, right? Like, you'll get it next week. It's fine. Maybe today will be that day. I get it. It's, it's hard. Luke chapter 11. Welcome into the recesses of my mind. Luke chapter 11, beginning in uh, verse 14. In honor of God's holy and perfect word, would you stand if you're physically able and follow along silently as I read aloud, beginning in verse 14. Uh, This is what the word of God says. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebel. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here we have Jesus casting out a demon. This is not uncommon for Jesus to do this. It's one of the most popular or powerful examples, if you will, of Jesus' deity, his omnipotent power over all Evil. In fact, if you're keeping score in your program, you know this is the fifth account in Luke thus far of Jesus casting out demons. And we've actually still got one to go in Luke 13. Pick it up in verse 14. It says, now he, that's Jesus, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. So verse 14 says this particular demon was mute and made his victim mute. Evidenced by the fact that when Jesus cast out the demon, the man began to speak and the people marveled. Now, we don't use the term marveled a lot. It's not a completely foreign term, but you probably go a long time before you use the term marvel. And so marvel to us might be like they could be wondering, they could be curious, but you need to understand whenever Luke uses this term, it's marveled to the positive, right? Wow. They're astonished. They're marveling at what they just saw and kind of excited about it. This isn't like they don't know what to make of it. They are in awe. When they're marveling, they're looking at what Jesus did and saying, Clearly, this is amazing. This man is either the son of God or sent from God, but they are in the positive in the main. 
And so the fact that people marveled means that they were amazed. They were likely to some degree believing in Jesus, seeing as what he did could not be done by anyone other than the one who was sent by God. Pick it up in verse 15. Uh, But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebel, uh, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So verse 15, if you look at that, verse 15 contrasts the first group with the second, right? That first group saw it and marveled. Verse 15 says, but some of them, meaning now on the other side, there's a different group, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebel. So this presents uh, an alternate reaction, an alternate response, an opposite response to Jesus's miracle, which brings us to our first point. Point number one, you need to know that everyone has either been affected by Jesus or offended by Jesus. Everyone has either been affected by Jesus or offended by Jesus. What you see illustrated here depicts to some degree, everyone's response to Jesus Christ. Affected in the sense that they're changed by him, by his power, his teaching, his love, his death, his burial, his resurrection. They are affected and that effect, that alteration in them is positive. They are saved. That's one option. Or they're offended by him. They're put off by him. They don't believe in him or him for what he has to say. They are offended by him. And everyone has either been affected by Jesus or offended by Jesus. This serves as a reminder to us that despite the day and age in which we live, which would have you believe that everything is gray and the world would have you believe that the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. Despite the fact that we're part of a people who are on the whole and in the main, dripping with pride so much that everyone demands not only to be tolerated, but lauded as well for what they believe. Despite all these things, our passage today reminds us of a very stark reality, a very stark difference, a black and white reality. There are really only two categories of people on earth, those who are affected by Jesus And those who are offended by Jesus. Those who are gods and those who are Satans. Those who are in the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The righteous and the unrighteous. The saints and the ain'ts. Now everyone who hears this sermon is in one of those categories. Everyone. Everyone you work with is in one of those categories. Everyone you drove in front of or behind or around. Everyone you shared the road with going from your home to your place of worship today. Everyone is in one of those categories. Everyone you sit in class with is in one of those categories. Everyone in your family, every Olympic athlete and everyone on the gridiron tonight in LA, everyone watching their TVs, every actor, every actress you see in a commercial and every performer at the halftime show, Everyone, without exception, everyone lives and everyone dies in one of those two groups. And they have very distinct, unescapable, opposite, eternal consequences. Listen to me. This is not, I don't think it's in your outline. It's worth remembering or writing down. It's a very simple statement. No one is neutral. Ever. No one is neutral. Listen to me. 
Those who don't believe in Jesus, who don't have him as their savior, but maybe they don't, they don't hate you for being a Christian. They're not like actively on a crusade against Jesus. They're just like, glad that works for you. I don't believe, but it's cool that you, you know, to each his own, that's fine. They just don't want to be a Christian themselves. Listen to me. I'm going to say something a little bold, but I think it's true. Those people, the casual non-Christian, the easy to be around non-Christian, I'm glad they're easy to be around. I'm sure we all know some. I'm sure they're in our families, in our friend circles. Listen to me. Those people are as much in partnership with Satan as someone who actively and openly worships the devil. You're like, you're right. Is everything okay? Like, you see, I think there are people who are, that's a bit strong. I think there are people who are kind of in between kingdoms. I think they're trying to figure it out. They're wrestling with truth. They're considering Jesus. I don't think they're in cahoots with those who worship Satan, Pastor. You all right? Do you sleep well? Listen, there is no neutral, there's not an in between. I'm not saying they're not considering the kingdom of light. I'm just saying they're doing so from the kingdom of darkness. There is no neutral. There is one or the other. They're in the kingdom of darkness and they're considering leaving, but make no mistake, that's where they are. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There is no demilitarized zone. There is no neutral. Everyone is either affected by Jesus or offended by him. So what's that to us who do love Jesus? What do we do with that reality? Well, we realize that every time we interact with another human being, every time we're talking to a citizen of heaven or a citizen of hell. No one decided. They are currently, they own a spiritual passport. They are currently a citizen of one or the other. a member of the kingdom of light, a member of the kingdom of darkness, a saint or an ape. And so here's what I want to know. What about, let's just pause for a minute. What about you? Is the Lord calling someone to your mind? Maybe bringing about a a sense of urgency for them? Because you realize that you can't, you're not going to drag anyone to the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. You can, no, one, no one becomes a believer kicking, like, God changes their hearts. They want Jesus. God changed your heart. If you're a believer, you at some point in your life wanted Jesus. But does it bring about a sense of urgency for them? What will you do about that? Will you be more prayerful for them? Will you maybe set a I like goals. Maybe you'll say, oh, no, I'm going to extend an invitation before next Sunday. I don't know what they'll do with it, but I'm going to invite them to church, to community group, to a cup of coffee, whatever. You look at an empty chair in the auditorium in which you sit and say, Lord, I want, I really want Tom sitting in one of these chairs. Help me do what I need to do as your vessel to make that happen.
He may not join me or he might, but I'm, I'm inviting. Maybe you're thinking somebody, you're like, you know what? I'm inviting her to my Bible study. Just wanted to come along. Wanted to meet other people. I wanted to rub shoulders with the people of God. I'm inviting them to my house. I'm going to pray that God would grant me an opportunity to have a conversation with someone that I eat lunch with this week. Because there is no neutral. And this reminds us of that. When we look at this passage and we see, wow, some of them were amazed, some of them marveled, and some of them said, uh, he's doing this because of the devil's power. Like, that would be different. So some of them are amazed, wow, did you see that? And then there's a whole other group are saying, he he definitely so did that by Satan's power. Saints and ain'ts. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. And so back to our text today, uh, verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So what are they doing? Well, here's the thing. Jesus' miracles were undeniable and irrefutable. We tend to use the term miracle pretty loosely these days. It's, it's not, I don't, I don't think it's terrible I don't think we need to start correcting people. How dare you say that? I think, I think Christians on the whole, when something happens and they're thankful and they want to attribute it to God, sometimes we just, you know, we're excited, passionate people, and we go a little overboard. We speak with hyperbole. Wow, it's a miracle. I couldn't believe I sat down and I, I sat in that interview and it didn't, I didn't feel like it was going well, but it turned out it did go well and I was offered the job. It's a miracle. And I would say, that's great. That's good. That's great. Not if you can explain to me how it happened. It's not a miracle. It's of God. But you just explained, someone's like, I was driving in the car and it was pouring rain and I realized I forgot my umbrella and I got to the store where I was headed and there was a spot right in front of the store. It's a miracle. I'm like, that's a stretch a bit. Like I, I, that's, it's great that that happened. I'm glad it happened. James one says every good thing comes from above. Give God the glory. It's a miracle. I think someone just vacated the, the spot. And you're, you're in it. And that's great. Let's just tone, like, I just feel like Jesus is like, man, it's easy to impress you. <laughs> You've been to a, a funeral? You've seen a, a loved one, a friend, a family member? laid out before you? Please let this sink in. Jesus looked at dead people and told them to rise. And they did. Jesus looked at paralyzed people And told them to get up. And while they're at it, take your bed with you. And they did. Jesus confronted the blind and gave them sight. Jesus fed thousands with a handful. Jesus' miracles were undeniable and irrefutable. No one looks at Jesus' miracles and say, I think there's a, I think there's a trap door. Like, said no one ever. Undeniable, 
irrefutable. Five loaves, two fish, thousands fed. Not like dozens. You're like, hey, he probably tore it up. That's what Christians do with donuts. We cut them in half. You know what I mean? Like, make sure. We don't spend a lot of money. We want to be generous, not too generous. So, you know, we split them up. Five loaves, two fish, thousands. Jesus' miracles were undeniable and irrefutable. And so since they couldn't deny that Christ's miracles occurred, because we all just saw the mute man speak, couldn't speak, now does speak. Since they can't deny that Christ did what he did, they decide to instead say, even though he did it, I bet he did it with demonic power. So not only do they claim that he tapped into demonic power to perform his miracles, but they said he received the power from Beelzebel, which the prince of demons, a.k.a. Satan himself. Because you can't deny what he did. We all just saw it. He didn't really do that. That's not even an option. But you know what? I, he, he probably used Satan to do the thing. That he did. And so the rest of our passage for today is Jesus debunking their blasphemous accusations against him, which we're going to get into. But hang with me for a minute, because like I'm reading this passage, this is the text, I'm preparing a sermon, and I'm like, what? Sometimes with narrative portions of scripture, it's just like, and that happened. Let's pray. Like, this is what Jesus did, this is what the Jews did, and that happened. And let's pray. But that would be a short sermon messes up children's ministry. So we've got to like, what is the application that we would have from this? But Lord, what would you have us do on a Monday or be thinking through as Christians in light of what's in the text today? Like it's not a one for one, right? So listen, here's what you got to do. Write this down. The next time you see somebody casting out a demon, don't accuse them of doing so by Satan until you know for sure. Like that's not going to happen. Like that's not, okay, great. I'll keep that in mind. Then I started thinking, what's behind these accusations they're making? Why would they come up with these things? Surely it's, so we're talking about Jesus, the son of God. Surely it's not like, well, Jesus was, he did something a little earlier that was awkward and that connected to this and they thought he was satanic. That, that's not even an option. Why would they come up with these things? What's at work in their hearts that would cause them to do what they do? Now, I don't know that it's one specific thing, but I want to consider at least one specific thing that I want you to see in our, in our passage today, and that is this, sinful suspicion. Sinful suspicion. The title of the sermon is Suspicious Minds, a nod to a lesser king. Anyone? Elvis? Yeah, whatever. It's fine. I work hard on these titles, all right? And no, no love. No, it's fine. Sinful suspicion. I use the adjective sinful because I don't think suspicion in and of itself is necessarily sinful. Uh, Proverbs talks about simple people who believe everything. So it's, and they're not lauded. Uh, There's nothing inherently godly with being blissfully naive either. There are actually times when I think it's good and wise to be suspicious. In fact, I think there are times when that suspicion is literally from God himself. 
If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, giving you a sense of something being awry, right? He comforts, he guides, he protects. Maybe something's afoot that you wouldn't have otherwise known about. I remember, oh, it was during COVID, actually. I'm, I'm giving announcements and welcoming people uh, at Fort Thomas. And just literally, I'm just looking out of the crowd, just as I'm doing my normal welcome and talking to people about connect cards and where to connect if they're new. And every time I just saw this young lady, I just thought something's up. And I just kept going. And I, I can't even tell you why. She was wearing a mask. I mean, it's not like I saw a facial expression. She was sitting exactly where she sits every week with everyone that she always sits with. There's nothing visible about her that would make me think something's up. But I just thought something, I don't know. I don't know why. I just feel like something's up. Go through announcements, scan again, something's up. We go through the service. We hear the sermon. Uh, we sing the closing song. We leave. I go into the lobby. I'm talking to someone else, but she happens to walk by, and I just think something is up. And I happen to talk to someone else, and she walks by again. She's actually on her way out. You're thinking, you're a terrible pastor. How come you haven't spoken to you? Well, it was busy. Anyway, so she, was, she leaves, and I think to myself, I can't. It's just something's up. Something's up. Follow up with her. Come to find out, a lot was up that I didn't know any, I knew nothing about. It's not like I had some background information that kind of connected. Nothing, nothing about a victim of a crime earlier that week where involving a stranger that they ended up, like just a, just a, a terrible, terrible, terrible week. A gripped by fear that didn't exist a week ago. Sometimes suspicion is a good thing. Something's, something's up. But not every suspicion is good and godly. Sometimes it's bad and sinful. I think that's what we're dealing with in our text today. They have no evidence or anything to believe what they believe. In fact, keep your finger in Luke 11. Would you turn to Proverbs chapter 3? Proverbs chapter 3. Kind of similar to our series in the book of Jonah last year. Sometimes there's passages that where, especially if you, if you grew up in the church, you're just familiar with their popular children's memory verses that I think sometimes the more we're familiar with them when we're young, we kind of don't necessarily focus on them when we're early. I've known that. These things I've known since my youth, right? So Proverbs 3, look at verse 5. This would be one of those verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do what? And do and a little louder, and do not lean on your own understanding. I'm told specifically something to do. I'm told specifically something to not do. Why? Let's read on. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He's in control. Speaking of the Lord, he's, he is sovereign. He is at work. And he will make straight your paths. Let's read on. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
wow, dang, like, here's something I don't want you to do. Don't be wise in your own eyes. What should you do? You should fear the Lord. In so doing, don't be wise in your own eyes, turn away from evil. Here, being wise in your own eyes is called not like, that's not cool, you might be wrong, you might look silly, embarrassed. Evil, evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Help me. Lean not on your own understanding. Contrary to that, the people that we read about in our text today in Luke chapter 11, they leaned lots on their own understanding. Not not, lots on their own understanding. They had absolutely no reason to be suspicious of Jesus. But they were wise in their own eyes, and so they were suspicious of him. So much so that it affected the way they thought. So much so that it affected the way they spoke. All the while justifying it in their minds and justifying it together, even to the point that they tried to have him killed. And spoiler alert, they had him killed. Sinful suspicion is a scary thing. Which brings us to point number two. You need to beware of sinful suspicion at work in your own life and the lives of those around you. Now, suspicion is the act of suspecting something on little or no evidence. That's, you know, like I had, I had very, I had no evidence. It wasn't a facial expression. Like I'm just looking out and I'm like, I think something's off. She doesn't look right. Something's up. I, what evidence do you have? Uh, none. Just a gut, like a liver quiver. I don't know what it, I just, I'm telling you, I just every, telling you what I feel. I could be wrong, but here's what I feel. And so I am suspecting something on uh, little or no evidence. Sinful suspicion is the act of suspecting something on little or no evidence. Watch and living as if it's true. Suspecting something on little or no evidence, but then that suspicion is enough for you to live as if it is true. Now, uh, in your outline at the end, there, uh, question number six, or the point number six, at the very end of your outline, it says, Pastor Peter recommended a resource, scan this code. Now, some of your outlines may not have it, some of our campuses may have it, I don't know, but it's about to appear on the screen. And so there's a QR code, if you are interested in this, which I highly recommend. It's in our resource centers, if your campus has a resource center, or you can get it from Amazon for the exact same price delivered to your door, it is a book called Suspicion by Lou Priolo. Not an intimidating book, very small book, super helpful book. It is blue, yet it is gold. Gold. Okay, so this is something that's worth getting your hands on and working through like everything Lou Priolo does. He's a biblical counselor. It's super applicable, very practical, things for you to consider as you think through Suspicion. Am I sinfully suspicious? Am I not sinfully suspicious? It's absolutely wonderful. I want to highly recommend it. If you scan the code, it's on the screen now. It'll take you to an Amazon page, or you can look it up yourself. But I highly, highly recommend Lou Priolo's book. And so once again, sinful suspicion is the act of suspecting something on little or no evidence and living as if it's true. And I want to present to you six things you need to know about sinful suspicion. Six things you need to know about Sinful suspicion. Even the first one has like 11 teen sub points, but that counts as one. It's my math. I'm preaching. Okay, so point number one, or A, letter A, six things you need to know about sinful suspicion. The first one is this. Sinful suspicion rarely travels alone. 
it usually shows up with other sins in tow. Now, there's a, there's a list there of a bunch of things that I'm not going to go through uh, at all. But I would encourage you to look through them on your own. I don't have the time to look through all of them, but I've listed many of them. And it's not, you're like, how do I, how do I even know if this is something I battle? Well, I would say start with this list. Just because you battle with one or two or a few of these sins doesn't necessarily mean you're sinfully suspicious. But I would say this, the more of these you wrestle with on a pretty consistent basis, I would be surprised if sinful suspicion was not somewhere present in your life. Anxiety, malicious thoughts, uh, rash judgments. If you sit back and you think, you know what? I tend to jump to conclusions a lot in my life. Maybe other people don't even know it, but I think I know the end. And then later on, I learned that I've been, I've, been, I've been wrong. That would be a rash judgment. You may not announce your rash judgment, but you're like, I tend to not say, let me figure this out. I tend to think I have it figured out and then I'm corrected. That would be a rash judgment. Failing to believe the best of another. I think when I'm confronted with a believer and I don't know the whole story, I tend to always, I tend to always like speculate to the negative. I don't assume the best of another. I, don't, I unrighteously judge people's motives. I I level false accusations and usually have to apologize for it. Whatever. As you work through that list, I would say the more of those you think, yeah, I kind of see that in me. I've wrestled with that. Sinful suspicion might not be far away because sinful suspicion rarely travels alone and shows up with one of these other sins in tow. So I would encourage you to consider those, to read the scriptures that are associated with it and see what the Lord might bring to your mind. Six things you need to know about sinful suspicion. The second is this. Sinfully suspicious people usually talk about the accused instead of to them. They usually talk about the accused instead of to them. So remember, going by the definition that I've put in your outline, sinful suspicion is the act of suspecting something on little or no evidence and living as if it's true. So going back to my example, I'm standing on the stage. I see a young lady in our audience who's like, uh, we'll call her Jennifer and like something's up, something she's sitting there. I just feel like something. And now I, let's say I just go with that. And that's enough for me to think something's up. Okay. And now I start to speculate. Now, if you're anything like me, you never speculate to the positive ever. Right? So I don't like it. Something's up. You know what? I, I bet she inherited a lot of money and doesn't know which charity to give it to. Like that's not ever going to cross my mind. Like, so I'm just thinking like something's up. She looks off. She looks stressed. Something's different. You never speculate to the positive. You speculate to the Negative. You scenario build in your mind. And before I know it, I've like, something's up. There's something. She hasn't approached me and she's not saying something. And before I know it, I've got her like mothering a nation and being a key leader of a drug cartel. Like, like, cause you just tend to speculate to the negative. And if you're happy enough with your suspicion, you're like, which the Bible would call being wise in your own eyes. You're going to land in a place where you shouldn't be. But here's something else that sinfully suspicious people do. They usually talk about the accused instead of to them. And we see that in our text today. So back in Luke chapter 11 in verse 15, but some of them said, you cast out demons by Beelzebel. Is that what it says? Doesn't. It says what? He cast out demons by Beelzebel. So they're talking not to Jesus, but what? They're talking about Jesus, right? To each other. He cast out demons by Beelzebel. It's in the third person. And that's a common denominator among sinfully suspicious People, sinfully suspicious people tend to talk about what they suspect in a way that isn't goal-oriented because they're not solution-driven, they're suspicion-driven. If they were solution-driven, then they would seek to humbly discuss what they suspect with 
the person they suspected in in order to bring some kind of closure to it. But they're not typically solution-driven. They're suspicion-driven. So in their own mind, they rationalize talking about their suspicions with other people instead of the one that they're suspicious of. Now, the rest of us would call that gossip. But when you talk to the sinfully suspicious, no, 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 it's not gossip. No, no, I just want to, it's, I'm just, I need counsel from a, a multitude of counselors. I need to know if it's just me or if there's any validity to their suspicion. And I wouldn't want to approach her saying is something up until I confirmed it with 11 people. And so I don't want to put her off. And so I talk to her friend and I say, I feel like something, I could be wrong, is something up with her? And they're like, geez, I don't know. I didn't think about that. Maybe there is. Like, yeah, maybe you don't see. All right, let me ask somebody else. Like, I feel like something's up. And of course, if, of course, Christians don't gossip. I'm just, you could fill in the blank. I'm just telling you because I wanted you to pray. I'm telling you because I just wanted you to pray. I just want to, I just want to know. I just want to, really, it's not gossip. I'm just trying to make sure, I just want to confirm how I'm feeling because I could be wrong. I could be wrong and I wouldn't want to be wrong. And I would just say, the best way to find out if you're wrong is to talk to the person you have a concern with. It'll be taken care of like so fast. No, I'd rather ask 17 people. Sinfully suspicious people tend to talk about the person they're suspicious of more than they talk to them. And that's what's happening in our text today. What you'll note about the sinfully suspicious is that everything they say they're doing by talking to others, they could do by talking directly to the person. Be easily. But they don't. Because they're not solution-driven. They're suspicion-driven. I just want to see if there's any validity in my suspicion. Great. You can do that by talking to the person or the people involved. I'm just raising a concern. Great. You can do that by talking to the person you have the concern with. I'll tell you someone who does this really well. It's Brad Bigney. You know him. Stands in this pulpit. Similar haircut. calls me from the airport to ask me a certain question. We're talking about a counseling situation. And then he says, you know, I was wondering when we were in that, there's been a a time in a meeting where you said something like that. So I'm wondering if it's kind of, I think you might. And he said, like, stand on this position on this particular counseling. Like, I I feel like you've said that. So is that, am I reading you right? And I was like, oh, I'm glad you asked. No, that's not, I actually don't mean that. I mean, this. He goes, okay, because I, I heard that and I was wondering if that's where you were on that. And so there we go. Clarity in nine seconds, one phone call, unlimited minutes, free. <laughs> Clarity. Or what Brad could have done was come out of that meeting, pull others aside who are in that meeting. I don't know who's ever in the meeting and be like, I feel like Peter said this. Is that what you picked up on? I just want to know if that's what, because I don't want to, I don't want to misjudge him. And so I just want to know if that's what you heard, because that's kind of what I heard. I think that's what he meant. Is that what he meant? Let's ask someone else if that's what he meant. Let's see if that's what he meant. And then talk to somebody else and be like, is that what you, that what you heard? That's fine. Let's say the three of them agree. Yeah, that's what I heard. Then what do they become? Wise in their what? Own eyes. Why? Because we've got an echo chamber of confirmation bias. We all see it. Nobody's confirmed it with the person they're talking about. But that's not what the lovely Brad does. Brad called and said, hey, I just, and this wasn't even a big deal. Like, hey, I was just wondering if that's what it was. Like, no, that's not what it was. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Literally moved on. Sinfully suspicious people don't talk to the person. They talk about them. In this case, they're not talking to Jesus, but talking about Jesus. And that's a common denominator you'll see among the sinfully suspicious. Since they're not solution-driven, they're suspicion-driven. The third of six things, letter C, 
sinfully suspicious people will say there's a way to appease them, but it's usually a moving target. Verse 16. So some are saying, he's doing this by Satan's power. And others are saying, we need a sign. They don't believe Jesus. They don't love Jesus. It says, verse 16, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They're not looking for the truth. And so a sign wouldn't help. If I could just remind you that the man just, the God man, just casted a demon out of a mute man in their presence. And they're like, yeah, but we need a, we need a sign. I mean, to quote a comedian, here's your sign, right? Like, like, well, I don't know. You need a sign? What do you need? Yeah, but we need, that wasn't the, we need a different sign. We need a sign from heaven. That was a sign on earth. And I know that a demon just left that person who was muted is now speaking, but we need a sign from heaven. I don't know, lightning, thunder. Do you think that if people don't believe in Jesus after he just casted out a demon, that they would then believe me if he pulled a rabbit out of a hat? Uh, heck no. It's a moving target. Well, that wasn't good enough, but now what if you do? Yeah, but we, so this way they can appease them. They're like, didn't, didn't you just cast out a demon? They're like, yeah, but then we asked for a second sign. He said, no, <laughs> sham. It's just so they can appease their own consciences, so they can appease their own suspicion. They've seen him perform miracles. They're not lacking signs. It's a moving target so they can assuage their own consciousness as to why they don't believe. It's a moving target. If you don't believe him after what I've said and, and, and done thus far, then you won't believe him if he, if he does something else. It doesn't matter. I know he walks on water, but did he run on water? I didn't see him run on water. He walked. Run on water. No. <laughs> but that's what you see when people are sinfully suspicious. They act as if there's something that can be done to help ease their suspicion. I just need to... I just feel like we haven't talked about it in the way that I wanted to talk. I just think we haven't, we haven't acted in this. There wasn't a thing that you didn't do. And I know I said that, but I didn't really. And maybe we just misunderstood. We need to start it over again. They round and 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 round they go. But it's a moving target. It's not a real hunt for truth. Bring closure. What's the solution here? It's just a moving target. See, their suspicion is self-made a figment of their own imagination. And so if you bring an objective reality to that or an objective truth, it's not going to satisfy the figment of their own imagination because there's something else at work in their hearts. And so Jesus could have done another sign. He could have done 19 other signs. They wouldn't have believed. They would have found something wrong every time. They don't want to believe. They've not been affected by Jesus. They've been offended by Jesus. Six things you need to know about the sinfully suspicious. The fourth, letter D, sinfully suspicious people will usually lack common sense to some degree. Uh, Verse 17, Jesus says this, but he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, that's great, right? Because you can hide from Jesus' ears, but you can't hide from his deity. So he, knowing knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. If Satan is also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And so here, Jesus, instead of just like smiting them, condemning them, 
Know what Jesus does here. He mercifully seeks to show them their accusation really doesn't hold water. Nobody would disagree that a kingdom engaged in a civil war divided against itself would eventually crumble. It would eventually self-destruct. So Jesus says, verse 18, if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus is saying, generally speaking, it's safe to assume that the devil and the demons are like on the same team. And you're saying that I'm casting out the devil's demons by the devil's power. And Jesus is just saying that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. The sinfully suspicious people aren't typically concerned with reality. They're not typically concerned with logic. They're not typically concerned with truth or with wisdom. They're not solution-driven. They're suspicion-driven. And so what you'll see is slowly, over time, that which they suspect becomes that which they see. It's called confirmation bias. And they live in an alternate reality because they've convinced themselves that they're right. And so that becomes their starting point instead of their ending point. They start from a certain perspective and say, okay, I know these things are true. So here, okay, I know, I just want to say this. I know that Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not the son of God. He's not going to help us make Israel great again. He's not the revolutionary we want or we need. He's a sham. So taking that into the situation, what? He cast out demons? Well, then I bet he did it by the power of a demon. But their starting point is faulty. They've already started and they didn't come up with like neutral, like, let's see what about Jesus. They came saying, hate this guy. And so it didn't matter if Jesus cast out a demon, walked on water or did cartwheels. They would have had a problem with it. Who does cartwheels? No godly man does cartwheels like that. Look, we saw all of his legs. What? He cast out demons? Well, then I bet he did it with a demon. Let's kill him. Their commitment to their own narrative... Their commitment to hatred of Jesus colors everything that they see him do. And so they start acting and talking. The theological term, I think, is stupid. Just stupid. But that's what sin does, folks. Sin really makes you stupid. I mean, we see it in counseling all the time when someone is so caught up in their double life that it just eventually becomes too much for them to handle. And usually the way that person gets caught in their double life is usually by something pretty stupid. Like, that's how they got caught? That's how we found out? Sin makes you stupid. And so these people lack the common sense because their accusation doesn't even hold water. You're casting demons out from Satan by Satan. And Jesus is like, am I really, is this happening now? But that's what happens because sinfully suspicious people will usually lack common sense to some degree. Uh, Fifth, letter E, sinfully suspicious people eventually lack integrity in the actions they take sooner or later. They eventually lack integrity in the actions they take sooner or later. Verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebel, this is Jesus talking, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Okay, now pay attention. I really want you to see this. It's a little hard, but I'm going to try to explain it. Here, Jesus takes a different approach. Jesus is saying, you know what? I'll give it to you. Let's say I cast out, it makes no sense. I'll give it to you. Let's say I cast out demons by the devil's power. 
It's like, for the sake of argument, let's say you're right and that's what I'm doing. What about when you do it? You've got rabbis and scribes and Pharisees who try to do the very same thing. Oh, and they fail. So what about when you do it? If when I'm doing this, this is clearly an act of Satan. What about when, and it works, when you guys do it and it fails, you're saying that's an act of God. This makes no sense. You might recall when we were in our series through the book of Acts, in Acts 19, there were these like itinerant exorcists who went around trying to do what Paul and the apostles were doing, but they failed. In fact, one time a, a, a demon literally says to them, it's great, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Like, who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house, wounded and naked. It's an awkward scene. So they're not good at casting out demons. And Jesus exposes their lack of integrity by essentially saying this. If casting out demons means you're in cahoots with Satan, why aren't you suspicious of your own exorcists? When you guys cast out demons and fail, you say what you're doing is by the power of God. He's just setting this up. Okay, so let me get this straight. When you guys do what I just did but don't succeed, you do it poorly, and you fail, you say that's of God. When I do it and it works, you say that's of Satan. So Satan did it. God didn't. You're essentially saying that Satan is more powerful than God. It's a double standard that shows a lack of integrity on the part of the sinfully suspicious driven people. But again, if you're sinfully suspicious and therefore suspicion-driven, double standards aren't a, they're just not a big deal. You won't treat people the way you want to be treated, as the scriptures tell us. The suspicious-driven person just looks for things to corroborate with their foregone conclusion because they lean lots on their own understanding. They are wise in their own eyes because they've convinced, they're convinced they know what's really going on And sooner or later, they'll lack integrity in what they choose to say or do as they become so laser-focused on their suspicion-driven agenda. That's what you see happening in Luke chapter 11. Finally, uh, letter F, sinfully suspicious people lack the spiritual maturity to discern things rightly. This is great. Verse 20, read it. Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God, can we just stop there for a minute? That phrase, you might read and say, wow, that's like, it's powerful. Like it puts a picture in my mind, God working. He is God, the finger of God. That phrase, the finger of God would have rung a bell with any Jew and especially Jewish leaders. Here's why. Because they would have known that phrase from the Old Testament. In Exodus, when the Egyptians were besieged by plagues, the magicians look at Pharaoh and say, this is the finger of God, Exodus 8 and verse 19. So there's a bunch of plagues that have been happening and the magicians are coming before Pharaoh and they're like, listen, we know magic, we love magic. This ain't magic. This is the finger of God. They are acknowledging what's happening is happening as the result of God. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and doesn't believe him. But they're like, listen, this is no, ma- like we, we do magic. It's good. It's fun. It's great. We saw people in hell. It's fine. This is not that thing. This is different. This is done by the finger of God. This is otherworldly. 
And so they would have been reminded, watch, that even pagan Egyptian magicians were able to discern the fact that God was the one at work. And yet here, the Jews, the supposed people of God, couldn't recognize the kingdom of God if it hit him over the head. They showed themselves to be spiritually dead, unable to discern good from evil, right from wrong, God from Satan. And then Jesus gives a simple analogy, verse 21. When a, when a strong, so he says, I'm sorry, verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Okay, so here, Satan is the strong man. That's, that's the analogy he's drawing. Satan is the strong man. He's guarding his own kingdom. He's doing his best to keep the lost as lost, to keep that person who is possessed by a a demon to say, that's mine, that's mine. You can't come near it. Doing his best to keep the spiritually dead as dead, possessing all who are is, holding them close. But look at verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And Jesus is like, I'm that guy. I'm stronger than you. Why? Because there's not a single solitary hellbound soul in the kingdom of Satan that Jesus can't just go to and say, mine, mine, and snatch out of the devil's hands forever and give eternal life. But the sinfully suspicious... Those who are suspicious-driven don't see things clearly. They don't discern things rightly. They think they do, but they don't. But since they think they do, they then take action based on their faulty interpretation of life and circumstances and people and places. And instead of being used by God to gather, they end up being used by Satan to scatter. Which brings us to our final point. Your life will show whether you've been affected by Jesus or offended by Jesus. You say, I feel like that was your first point. I see what you did there. A little tired on a Thursday. The difference is, before I wanted you to make sure that you knew that everybody you know is in one of two camps. There's no neutral. There's no spiritual Switzerland. There's kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. Jesus in verse 23 says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral. What about you? You're either with Christ or against Christ. You either gather with him or scatter from him. And so before we spoke about how that should bring a sense of urgency to our minds about people we know and love and care about, let's, let's end this today by bringing it home. And let me look at you and say, don't think of that person. But think of yourself and mark my words. There is no neutral. 
Maybe you sit here today and you think, man, I thought I was kind of in the kingdom or I was at least toying with the idea of loving Jesus. I kind of like it, but I'm just not sure and I'm kind of working on it, but I'm not against him. There is no neutral. And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. If you say, I get it, I'm almost there. I'm, I'm almost there. I get it. I'm almost in. Just understand that so long as you're almost with Jesus, you're completely against Jesus. Because there is no neutral. And so I want to ask you to consider, perhaps God is calling you today to break free of the devil's lies of neutrality of the devil's lies of safety where there is no safety, of the devil's lies of peace when there is no peace, saying, you're okay, you don't got to go all the way, you're close enough. You're on your way. Is God calling you today out of Satan's lies of neutrality and into the real, eternal kingdom of light? You see, God loved sinners like you and me so much that he gave his... One son, his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's more than a sideline or an end zone sign. That's the good news of the gospel by which you can be saved. Today, if you hear, not my voice, but his voice, if the Lord uses the word of God on your heart to, to call you, would you, it's my hope and prayer that you would harden not your heart. That you would say, Jesus, I either got to be all out or all in. And I hope and pray that you would choose all in. You will never regret a life in Christ. You will be kept safe by him. You will be granted eternal life and not eternal judgment. And your life will not immediately improve. But you will have purpose and meaning and a sense of power and understanding because of whom you trust in, Jesus Christ. And so it's my hope that if you're in that false neutral zone, that Spiritual Switzerland idea that doesn't exist. Oh, friend, would you come to Christ today? Would you cry out and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Would you say, Lord, save me. Help my unbelief. Grant me faith. Grant me repentance. I want to walk with you all the days of my life. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Father in heaven, we come before you saying, would you today gather women and men and boys and girls and young and old and the mature and the immature and the, uh, those who are just killing it in life and those who are struggling in every way, shape and form. And Lord, would you gather people to your side? Would you add to your kingdom today for your glory. Would you cause people to understand the gospel afresh 
and anew. For those of us who do understand the gospel, would you show us where in our lives we can be more like you, less like ourselves? Lord, we know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us where we're weak. Help us where we lean on our own understanding. Help us where we're wise in our own eyes and drive us back to truth for your glory and for our good. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our King. Amen.